And a jarring return back to Tox News. Go ahead, throw a chain on, nigga. Tell them boys where you came from, nigga. Tell them boys why I stay up late. Trying to say, trying to say, trying to say something, nigga. Trying to say, go ahead, throw oh, a chain is, uh... on, nigga. Tell them boys where you came from, nigga. Tell them boys why I stay up late. Trying to say, trying to say, Welcome to part to two. Young Peggy Ringo Slick with the ink These melodies need to I love I love JPEG Mafia And him matching up With Brock Hampton's great Feel like Eddie Winslow Street fighter like Birdie Keep a stick like Relento Did you win if your purpose Is just perfect potential Did you live up to it Is you doing the minimum Used to get 50 views Now they need Peggy's But welcome Welcoming back the podcast To part two The live stream is still going hard uh, but thank you for joining me back for part two of Ben Shapiro recapping Trump's uh, first term with about zero criticism. So far, I haven't heard anything that Ben Shapiro does not like. So it's pretty cool. You know, you got to love it when, you know, you just... Uh, don't judge a president by any of their merits whatsoever and just just like unabashedly suck their dick. Um, all right. So um, thank you for joining me back again. I just want to say that because I don't know really how to transition back into what we were just doing. Um, but we're back. Uh, still live on Twitch. Tox streaming. T-O-X streaming. It's where you can find me. Uh, poor dumb rebel, P O O R D O M space rebel, R E B E L. That's the YouTube channel where you can find this archived. Um, and then again, uh, you know, if you're listening to this on a podcast, I love you. Um, like, share, subscribe, whatever, do a review. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to do any of this. I really just do it. And that may be foolish on my part, but hey. Nobody asked you. I mean, just kidding, I did. Hit me up on Twitter, at AzaWave, A-Z-A-W-A-V. Um, I, I would love to hear from you. If not, uh, then, you know, that's cool, too. You know, it is what it is. Uh, I got my coffee. I got some water. Uh, probably do another fucking hour and a half to this shit. Because the crazy thing is, is that, like, for every five minutes of shit, Ben Shapiro uh, just says out of his mouth um there's like 20 minutes of debunking to do so um yep bring the screen back hey there's my smile oh man i, I like doing this i don't really care how many people watch or don't um this is very engaging for me um now i'm just scrolling through twitter because my brain is uh mush Oh man, RIP to Sean Connery, age 90. Uh, only Most of us could only be so lucky. Um, I hope it was from natural causes, not, not, not Corona. Hmm. He was Scottish, I didn't know that actually. Died peacefully and asleep in the Bahamas. Ah, that's it's it's a hell of a way to go. All right.
Back to work. To what I think may be actually the most important accomplishment of the Trump administration. And I know that Trump has been bashed to hell and back over his COVID response. The reality is yep. no one on the left can explain what they would have done differently. Really, no one. All they say is wear masks a lot. Hey, the ma um, we could definitely say um, not downplaying it since the beginning. He said it would be gone by Easter. Can we remember that? And then we would. can we also remember when he said it would be gone uh, by summer because the, the hotter temperatures will kill the virus? Can we also talk about when he, um, which... I said he said sarcastically to a room full of serious people that we should try injecting people with bleach. Also, that he wanted to like put UV rays inside of them. Like, come on, dude. Come on. He also says at his rallies that it, he wants to cut down testing, which I'm sure he's cut down some funds. But he said that he wanted to cut down uh, corona testing uh, because the, the more testing we have, the more cases there are. And what he's missing here is just one word, is that the more testing we have, the more known cases we have. Because without testing, then there's unknown cases. So... Yeah, um, his actual leadership, just the, the just the, the 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 leadership by example, is what's essentially missing here from President Trump's uh, responses. Um, he could have done a lot better with reappropriating uh, money, and like I had said earlier, eight million people dropped below the poverty line. So there's something to be said about that. Um, yeah, he's been incredibly irresponsible with his verbiage and his wording, and like that's the whole that all kind of relates to how most of his supporters don't want to wear masks. So um, I'm I'm interested to see how he how he defends it here. Masking data is mixed. Mask mandates have not prevented massive increases in caseload all across Europe. They have not stopped increased caseload in places like France or Germany or Italy or virtually any place else. Do they have mask mandates? Um, Bloomberg, July 2016 says, uh, let's see here. The fuck? It's like it's like a really simple <sighs> Bloomberg. Come on, man. Yeah, it seems like Really, at, a, at the early stages, nobody wore masks. And then as uh, time went on, um, sections or certain countries, I, I hate the way they did this. It's very fancy, Bloomberg, but like you're... Finally, another group is still bucking the trend with a majority of residents wearing masks. Some of these countries quickly contained their outbreaks, but others had extremely high death tolls. 
Um, I don't like the way they set up these graphs. It's fucking annoying because you can't even read and follow the lines very well because of the way that they put shit in the middle. Uh, there are countries that had fewer people wearing masks to start with but quickly took up their use, the United States being one of them. But we're appearing to be below 80%. Germany seems to also be below 80%. I wanted to know who has mask mandates. Like, why are we going over who did and didn't wear them based on public uh, initiative, not necessarily mandates or anything? So this was a waste of a little bit of time. I'm sure there's um, there's information out there in that article, but this was... Uh, was that, that was very annoying because it was the first article to come up uh al jazeera says which countries have made wearing face masks compulsory which is like not mandated can i just get a can i get a list like are you fucking serious we have to write everything into a story all right here we go venezuela was among the first countries to impose the mandatory use of face masks in public back in march i don't know if i can necessarily trust Venezuela's numbers. Uh, Vietnam made fa ma uh, made fast face mask compulsory for people to wear in public on March 16th. Interesting. Vietnam being one of the success stories. On March 18th, the Czech Republic became the first European country to make wearing masks mandatory in supermarkets, pharmacies, and public transport. Okay, let's check on the checks. Um, yeah, their cases have been low as shit up until recently, and their biggest spike was 15,000. So I don't know necessarily uh, how they're having such a massive outbreak if they kept it so low for so long because they were one of the first earlier, earliest adopters of the mask mandate in public areas. So I'm going to click on this BBC article that came out five days ago about where it went wrong. I hope my muke hasn't my muke, my mic hasn't been muted this whole time. All right, cool. It hasn't been. All right. So where did it go wrong? Um, it's usually where you go to get checked out. Uh, cavernous halls are now home to a ghostly field hospital built by the army in just over seven days. On Sunday, it was formally handed over to Prague's main infectious disease hospital. Our task is in... Okay. Uh... All right. So we're talking about like a facility that was being built um, in precaution, in, 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 yeah, pre preparing for an uptick in this, but it's very annoying that like how we write our stories, a short drive away in the center of Prague. And it was different world, a world of crowds strolling along the river embankment in the autumn sun, feeding the swans, thronging the farmer's market. Everyone, it seemed had a slightly different way of interpreting the authorities, pleased to stay at home, except for essential shopping and exercise. It seems that people try have tried to go back to normal a little bit in Prague is the the story here. On Wednesday, the government ordered most non-essential shops to close, leaving open supermarkets, grocery stores, chemists, pet shops, and those providing goods and services essential to the economy, such as computers and IT. Restaurants, cafes, and pubs are closed to seated customers and dissuaded from letting people linger outside. Takeaway and delivery services allowed until 8 p.m. That's an arbitrary reason. 
eight or curfew. Um, all schools have gone online. I mean, it's like a general sickness, we believe. So like a stronger flu said one man claiming that he'd studied the virus intensively since March using the who and other sources. We're young. We're not afraid of it, said his companion. We're doing everything for our health, whatever we can. We take exercise, we eat properly. And I think that's a good weapon for it. <sighs> okay, so efforts down the drain. All right. So Dr. Marie Bourne, a GP in the city's Carlin district, said she understood people were tired of the pandemic, but they were becoming complacent, she said, at precisely the moment it was threatening to spiral out of control. It's really disappointing. I felt very angry at times because all of the effort from springtime just seems to have gone down the drain. The virus is still here and things have gone pretty badly since then. So it seems like the relaxing of like uh, lockdowns actually can hurt, especially if people don't. Uh, wear masks in precaution as well. Um, the prediction was, okay, hold on. Let me go back up for a second. Our estimate is that small hospitals will be overwhelmed within a few days and big hospitals in a few weeks. Data scientist, best-selling author, divine. Da, da, da. That prediction was repeated on television a few days later by the head of the Czech medical chamber who said COVID was now the second most common cause of death in the Czech Republic. Peter has brought together about a dozen scientists, including many of the country's leading epidemiologists, virologists, and microbiologists. He urged people to take individual responsibility regardless of government mandates, staying at home as much as possible and wearing masks everywhere. If not, they say their modeling shows the current death toll of more than 2,200 could reach 15,000 by Christmas. It's a terrifying, yeah. So, um, yeah, the only fight we have against it right now is staying at home and wearing masks. And Ben Shapiro's arguing against both, most likely. And Trump isn't pro uh, either of those either. You're like, Trump literally doesn't want to shut down any parts of the economy because then it, it makes his economy look bad. Um, and then he doesn't want to really advocate for masks because he has like a bunch of supporters who think that it has something to do with their rights. Ugh. Um... Turkey ordered all of its citizens to wear masks when shopping or visiting public, crowded public places. Uh huh. Israel made it mandatory for its citizens to wear masks while out in public. Israel. Yeah, everybody's starting to see like pretty big spikes. Israel's largest spike was around September 30th with 10,000 cases. Apparently, Israel kicks off coronavirus vaccine human trial on Sunday. So that's interesting. Um, but yet again, they have a very flattened curve, and we're starting to see a big spike nowadays. And I wonder how much of it has to deal with colder weather, because that's also the Middle East. Do they have colder weather? <laughs> that's my American ignorance showing. Um, but also, like, you know, does it have more to do with, yeah, on October 16th, Israel to ease second lockdown after cases uh, go down for a little bit? Um, they had two nationwide lockdowns, though, and that might have a lot to do with why their numbers were so low early on. Um, 
but seeing a spike, maybe like people do get too comfortable, don't wear masks as much as they they should, having more gatherings, maybe doing too much travel. There's a lot of uh, things that are associated with these spikes, but I think the most important thing is that people need to take the personal responsibility to throw to show some restraint in a pandemic time because like these are these are crucial times, people. These are crucial times that we live in, and it doesn't affect just you. So. That does not mean that masking isn't useful in certain particular situations. You're in close contact with someone for 20 minutes. That person is vulnerable and it's useful. Okay, but that is really the only thing that Democrats can hang their mask on, so to speak. Their their COVID response has been entirely in favor of lockdowns, which are bad and have now been condemned by the WHO. They say they they, they will push vaccines, but it was Trump that created Operation Warp Speed and it's Democrats who are now saying that they won't approve any vaccine approved by Trump. It, it, was, it was Trump who got the PPE and the ventilators where they needed to go. The most important accomplishment that Trump made during COVID, though, was that he refused to take control via the federal government of every aspect of Americans' life. You know if a Democrat were in charge, we would have been talking about national lockdowns. You know if a Democrat were in charge, they would have used every ability at their disposal in order to seize control of private means of production. <laughs> Holy shit. Lockdowns isn't like them just like implementing authoritarian communism that's so that's so fucking like every every opportunity they have like conservatives and republicans the right wing every minute they every policy they can to say like the democrats are a bunch of radical communists they they will take that opportunity even if it makes absolutely no sense um lockdowns probably would have been our best bet just because americans don't give a fuck we don't give a fuck like there's been so many weddings there's been so many like baby showers and like people having these gatherings that they really shouldn't be having one of my favorite videos and this is anecdotal but like one of my favorite videos was a cop going up to this kid or uh, not kid but this fraternity house and telling them that they're not supposed to have that many people gathered and then the student uh, later admits that he has COVID. And then he's like, yeah, we all have it. And so the cop obviously has to fine all of them because they had a gathering bigger than 10 people and potentially spread COVID to every single one of them. So it's unfortunate, but I feel like the nature of the lockdown at least lets people know how serious this is. But like we had a president who admitted openly that he wanted to downplay it. And I, I, my favorite quote from him is like, I wanted to downplay it. I always wanted to downplay it. I still like downplaying it. I still like downplaying it. He likes downplaying it so much that he caught it and continues to downplay it as we reach record levels of uh, cases. There was a call to do that through the Defense Production Act. Trump refused it. He said these companies are working with us. There is no reason that we need to seize control of these companies. He did activate it so that ventilators became more of a prop uh, priority for production. But yeah, he, he did the bare minimum when it comes to this. He, you know, he did the very, bare, very, very, very bare minimum. And he's like, it could have been 2.2 million dead. And it's like, yes, if you did nothing. He was right. The fact that Trump's first response to the single greatest opportunity for a government power grab of my lifetime was not to make that power grab is a great indicator. He is not quite the fascist or tyrant that the left likes to make him out to be. The left would have grabbed power in a heartbeat. They have in California, in New York, in New Jersey. Trump didn't do that. And for that, he deserves enormous credit because he was getting extraordinary blowback 
And the easiest thing in the world would have been for him to say, okay, you guys want me to take control? I'm taking control. He didn't. That is a good thing. This is a federalist country. States and localities ought to be the first line of defense against this sort of stuff. And not every state and not every locality ought to be treated exactly the same. It's fascinating because it's a global problem. So to think that like the first line of defense should be the states who rely on federal funding, especially with something that can like seriously drain an economy pretty fucking hard, um, is it's such a weird argument to go on states rights on this one. Um, when it's literally a global problem, like if the United States can't get its shit together, this virus will have a greater chance of mutating and spreading even worse across the, the globe yet again. Um, so, um, yeah, this is, this is bad. When it comes to COVID restrictions, good for Trump on that score. So we are going through President <laughs> Trump's accomplishments in his first term. <laughs> literally... He gave Trump a good score for not taking control of everything. But like literally, if you could listen to the argument, he gave him points for just not doing anything. For not doing anything. Oh my God. Holy asinine, bro. Like you, you are so bad for independent thought. Wow. Wow in office. We've gone through his domestic policy. Now it's time to get to the even better stuff that he's done, which is his foreign policy. Trump's foreign policy has been excellent, like really, really good. I understand that people thought that Trump was going to be a disaster on foreign policy. And there are areas of foreign policy where I really disagree with Trump's approach, particularly North Korea. I don't think that whining and dining Kim Jong-un and writing love letters or anything like that is good foreign policy. However, on everything else, He's been much, much stronger than Barack Obama. Barack Obama wanted to reduce the military. It's why he insisted on trillion-dollar cuts to the military in the middle of sequestration. He, he insisted that the military be... I'm pretty sure Obama still had record spending. I'm pretty sure he still uh, had a uh, record spending on the military. Like, the budgets have only just been increasing. So he might have brought spending down a bit, right? Yeah, even though like it reached ridiculously high levels. I mean, it's only been increasing. Like it's just it keeps increasing every time. So it's like dropping it down just a little bit when all we really need is drone strikes isn't Yeah, it's a, it's uh yeah. Like this article says right here, it's, it, this, this subject is red meat to Republicans. Be cut down to the bare bones. He insisted on making it so that our, our military was incapable of fighting a two-front conflict. And Donald Trump has rebuilt the military. We have sunk enormous sums of cash into rebuilding the military. At the same time, he's actually created unprecedented peace and prosperity in regions that have not seen it in quite a while. So his most obvious accomplishments have been in the Middle East. So on a, on a personal, my favorite thing about this article right here is, uh, let's see, where did it say? 
President Obama's U.S. budget proposal includes $671 billion for the Defense Department, a cut from the current year, but still by far the largest military budget in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so depleting. On a level, I have great appreciation as a Jew for the fact that Donald Trump moved the embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That was something that people had suggested they were going to do for decades. Congress had approved it. Trump actually did it. Trump, in doing that, bucked decades of conventional foreign policy wisdom that said that the Arab street was going to rise en masse, that Arabs cared everywhere about where the United States placed its embassy, that by legitimizing the Jewish claim to Jerusalem, this was somehow a violation of all peaceful norms and was going to lead to wild violence in the streets. None of that happened. Trump... It did... Sh it, 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 yeah, it didn't le lead to like an... Intif uh, what was it called? An intifada? basically an uprising which the Palestinians have had multiple times but it did lead to it did lead to some serious unrest because it did show that the United States has gone full protectionist for Israel like that's just the completion of the cycle um, and yeah it, it was you know promised even by the Obama administration to get it done but they didn't do it because they were probably afraid of the consequences whereas Trump didn't give two fucks um, Trump has given zero fucks when it comes to um, offending subsections of the Muslim community. He's still willing to work with like Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and what have you, but it's a very complicated situation out in the Middle East that I can't even really say that I fully understand or can explain. But um, uh, Trump's foreign policy in the Middle East isn't as great as most Republicans and conservatives, right-wingers have been saying it is that they they really conflate and, and exaggerate exactly what's so great about it um and i can't wait to hear what ben shapiro has to say recognize the truth jerusalem is the undivided capital of israel it will remain the undivided capital of israel and the united states doesn't get to decide where israel has its capital israel gets to divide where it, decide where it has its capital but it didn't stop there this was actually the the beginning point of a breakout of peace in the middle east that we have not seen in several decades it actually was okay so here was what happened Donald Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Nothing happened. Donald Trump recognized that the Golan Heights were sovereign. Nothing happened. I'm just I just want to I just want to highlight here because Ben Shapiro hates Palestinians. In the New York Times, May 14th, um, Israel kills dozens at Gaza border as U.S. embassy opens in Jerusalem. So I, as I remember, uh, Palestinians were uh, protesting at the border saying, hey, this is um, the move that says Palestine is dead. And... Uh, um, They, they went to protest. Over 50 Palestinians in massive protests are killed by Israeli military. So um, New York Times says dozens. ABC says 50. Bloodiest day in Gaza since 2014 war. So uh, the deaths and injuries to over 2,400 people came mostly from gunfire by Israeli forces as Palestinians amassed at the border in far greater numbers than in other recent demonstrations. So uh, Ben Shapiro said nothing happened. 
I hate I hate the fog of memory because it allows um, people with agendas like this to basically lie on on things that actually happened. In Israeli territory, they were not disputed territory. They were not owned by the Assad regime in Syria. Nothing happened. Donald Trump recognized that the settlements in Judea and Samaria, the so-called settlements in the West Bank, were not de facto illegal under international law, which, of course, is true. Nothing happened. And it became obvious to everyone that the Arab nations are not primarily concerned with bolstering the, the warful aspirations of the Palestinian Authority, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad. That the terrorist leadership of the Palestinians had not wanted to make peace. That all of their goals on peace had nothing to do with territory. It had nothing to do with... I mean, it's fascinating because I, I just kind of think about it like if... Um... The, during colonization of the Americas, if they were calling uh, indigenous and natives peoples um, terrorists, which I don't think that word was prevalent back then, they just called them savages. So I guess that was that was the replacement word at the time. But it's very fascinating to call them warmongers because he's completely he he already lives in the world where Palestine never existed. Um, that you know the, these settlements were never illegal, and that the Israeli people were always justified in taking over as much land as they wanted when so many agreements have just gone under the table completely. It's, 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 it's devastating. It's really devastating, but this is how a colonizer and an imperialist thinks. It's very obvious. With actually achieving a Palestinian state, it was all directed at violence. It was directed at violence against Israel and the destruction of the state of Israel. And the Arab nations had more to gain through peace with Israel than by continuing to back the violence of the Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority. And I agree with that, but it's mainly because I think since uh, the 1960s, like Israel had just dominated in all the wars that had uh, come through. So because Israel was able to hold its ground and then conquer more territories, eventually people recognized that Israel was going to be the prevailing state in this situation. And most of that has come from Western help. I don't think the Palestinians had too much. And that became absolutely clear when nothing happened. And the next step was a peace agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, followed by a peace agreement between Israel and Sudan, and a peace agreement between Israel and Kosovo. I, I tried my best, um, and these aren't peace agreements, they're trade deals, which I guess in a capitalist, globalist society, those are the same thing. But on my blog, poordumrebellion.net, um, I had written to my best of ability um, the people of Israel and the unpeople of Palestine. I tried a bit to try and write a summary of the history of um, the war and the conflict in Palestine and it's a very complicated issue so if you're if you're interested um, I have it but I also let's see um, man I can't remember how to add the chat thing in this so that's this is bad <laughs> Um, let's see. Yeah. So I'm just going to include it in the chat. 
I did try my best to include uh, a fair balanced overview, but um, I do view their occupation to be illegal. So, um, and I, I guess not illegal, but unjustified would probably be my uh, actual assessment there. So, um, you know, feel how you will about that, but that's that's that's, that's, that's where I sit on it. I think it's uh, extremely unjustified, illegitimate settlements, and uh, forcing out people of their their land. I don't think that's very cool. Um, ben Shapiro uh, seems to already be whitewashing history. So, and there are peace agreements all over the Middle East now, right? There are peace agreements that are happening, Bahrain. They're happening all over the Middle East right now. I like how he can like just drop the names of everybody who's being included on these trade deals, but can't like exactly go into how like peace has been achieved or what kind of fighting has ended. But he can just name countries who have joined in on these trade agreements, which is all just kind of more furthering of the legitimacy of Israel as a nation and furthering the destruction of Palestine. And the reason that that stuff is happening and more are coming. Morocco is on the docket. Saudi Arabia is on the docket. The reason that is happening is because Donald Trump had the balls, frankly speaking, to dump over conventional foreign policy wisdom, suggesting that the centrality of the Israeli-Palestinian issue, that only if Israel made concessions to the terrorist Palestinian leadership would peace break out in the Middle East. Until then, the Arab nations would remain in a state of constant war with Israel. And they would continue to oppose the United States. Turns out that's not true. It turns out that Donald Trump's willingness to buck conventional foreign policy wisdom. How many of these places were actually at war with Israel? Or were these like all Cold Wars, like proxy wars and trade wars and shit like that? Like it's very fascinating. Because even with our trade deals, like we still fight proxy wars with people that we trade with. Was wisdom. It was smart. It was correct. He hasn't gotten proper credit for that. He should get proper credit for that. It is also true, by the way, that his willingness to express that what the Middle East is not a quote-unquote honest broker between a westernized liberal country like Israel and terrorists like the Palestinian Authority. What is necessary is for the West to overtly side with its allies and say, these are our allies and we will back them. And if you would like us to back you too, if you would like us to provide you with all of the tender mercies that the West can offer, then perhaps you should get on board. Also, worth noting, this was the uh, unintentional side effect and consequence of Barack Obama's garbage foreign policy elevating Iran to a status of a regional power. It turns out that when you elevate the mullahs, everybody who is on the mullahs hit list is going to side with Israel against the mullahs. Here was Donald Trump announcing some of these peace deals. After 49 years, Israel and the United Arab Emirates will fully normalize their diplomatic relations. They will exchange embassies and ambassadors and begin cooperation across the board by uniting two of America's closest and most capable partners in the region, something which said could not be done this deal is a significant step towards building a more peaceful, secure, and prosperous Middle East. Okay, so that was obviously a historic moment. He's not gotten proper credit for that. If Barack Obama had done it, he would have won his second Nobel Prize, given that he won one just for breathing and being a human. Okay, so that Christ. was actually an accomplishment. That is a major, major thing. These are the first major uh. peace deals in the region in 30 years, certainly since, uh, certainly since 1994 and the uh, Jordanian peace deal. Okay, but that, frankly, I think these are just as important, if not more important, because it's full normalization. It's recognition of Israel's right to exist. Boom! That's it. That's all it is. It's not peace deals, bro. 
Jesus. I'm so glad he admitted it at the end there. It's full normalization. That's a different thing than Jordan simply saying we're not going to exist in a constant state of open warfare with our neighbors. Okay, meanwhile, he cracked down on Iran. He dumped out of the idiotic Iran deal. The Iran deal was a lie that was foisted on the American people by the... And everybody said that that was actually like a pretty big mistake because like it, it holds Iran no longer accountable to... It then had the freedom to just create nuclear uh, weapons because there was no um, deal with the United States to make sure that they were adhering to not doing so. But it also allows them to create those weapons and then for the United States to be like, oh, they're aggressing. We don't like that. We don't like Iran. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't really understand the Iran uh, relations. I just, uh, all I really know is that the United States doesn't want them to be a uh, major power in the Middle East, maybe because they have a lot of anti-Western rhetoric or policies or antagonism. I'm not 100% sure. I think they just don't play ball enough with us for us to allow them to have nukes. Uh, Turkey and Pakistan, sure, go ahead. But um, uh, Iran, fuck no. Israel, okay. Iran, fuck you. The Obama administration, the lie was there were moderates in Iran who would be emboldened if the United States signed over billions of dollars and opened the gates to hundreds of billions of dollars in commerce to an Iranian terrorist regime that supported the murder of American soldiers in Iraq, supported the full-scale destruction of the state of Israel, supported the overthrow of the Saudi regime. Right, the Obama administration said, you can yeah. use that money for terrorism, fine. Just promise us that you're not going to develop nukes for 10 years. Okay, that is not a deal. That is a surrender. I, I feel like they're not even the, the biggest supporters of terrorism. I'm sure, because they do you know, fund some groups, and of course, um, uh, they, they do the same kind of proxy wars as, uh, um, as everybody else. Like, uh, I, I, I believe Saudi Arabia and Iran are doing proxy wars in Yemen, and Yemen is the, the citizens of Yemen are actually the uh, biggest sufferers of that um, but here Saudi Arabia is said to be the world's largest source of funds and promoter of Salafist jihadism which forms the ideological basis of terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda Taliban Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant and others so um, yeah Saudi Arabia supported ISIS in Iraq so which is funny, too, because I remember um, from the 9-11 conspiracies and also information is that uh, Saudi Arabia funded a lot of the uh, um, Al-Qaeda uh, attack. So maybe uh, through Saudi Arabia's support of terrorism, it uh, keeps the cycle of the United States fighting terrorism in the Middle East. So it keeps us there and Saudi Arabia pays in a very, I would say, a creative way to keep us in the Middle East. So uh, I think that's interesting that he is blaming it Iran and uh, is not actually looking at any other evidence that says, uh, actually, it's uh, Saudi Arabia who is uh, staunchly opposed to Iran. So, um, yep.
interesting feelings there, Ben. Trump dumped out of it. Because I don't see any facts supporting what you're saying. It set the stage for sanctions on Iran. It set the stage for the weakening of the Iranian regime. And it set the stage for an actual alliance against Iran that included both Jews and Arabs. This is Trump dumping out of the Iran deal in uh, May of 2018. In just a short period of time, the world's leading state sponsor of terror will be on the cusp of acquiring the world's most dangerous weapons. Therefore, I am announcing today. I just want to say that beforehand, like the UN and the United States uh, had said that Iran had been adhering to all of this. I mean, from what my understanding was, is that they wanted to cooperate completely with this because they never really wanted war with us. That the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. Today's action sends a critical message. The United States no longer makes empty threats. Okay, well, that was a, uh, that was a very good thing. And it, it turned out the United States did not make empty threats. Trump made, again, the ballsy move of killing Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was in Iraq. He was fostering violence against American troops and against American bases in Iraq. He was not in Iran. Yeah, um, he could have been meeting with, like, Iran or, I mean, Iraq leadership. But it's, um, he's, he's, he's not making, uh, there's no evidence yet again of that. Um, we, we committed, like, an act of war. And we also broke Iraq's sovereignty to kill him. Um, so that's a very, that's a very interesting look at that. Um, I wanted to click here on CFR.org that says, what is the status of the Iran nuclear deal agreement? Um, this article I think was January 7th, 2020, um, signed by China, France, Germany, Iran, Russia, the United Kingdom and the United States in 2015, the JCPOA or the Iran deal place significant restriction on Iran's nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. President Trump unilaterally withdrew the United States from the agreement in 2018, claiming it failed to curtail Iran's missile program and its influence in the region. So right now, I guess, um, if the Iran nuclear deal still exists, China, France, Germany, and Iran, Russia, and the United Kingdom are still a part of this deal. Despite European efforts to salvage the JCPOA, Iran began ignoring limitations on its nuclear program in 2019. And I feel like that might have a lot to do with the fact that uh, America keeps moving uh, pretty uh, viciously against Iran, such as killing their uh, highest general. So it seems it's breaking apart. Uh, Following the U.S. killing of Iranian military commander uh, Soleimani uh, January 2020, Iran announced plans to halt most of its commitments to the deal. So again, uh, Trump's kind of been like pushing them to the edge, it seems like. Um, let's see. And then this goes a little bit more over the specifics of it, but I, I find it very interesting that we're gonna see later on probably some bigger um, developments on that over the next couple of years. So we have foreignpolicy.com. Despite US sanctions, Iran expands its nuclear stockpile. 
Two years after President Donald Trump announced the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, Tehran has resumed its enrichment of uranium, restarted research and development on advanced centrifuges, and expanded its stockpile of nuclear fuel, cutting in half the time it would need to produce enough weapons-grade fuel to build a nuclear bomb. Iran is manifestly closer to being able to produce a nuclear weapon than they are two years ago. So that's an effect. While there is no evidence Tehran is preparing a dash for a nuclear weapon, the Iranian advances raise questions about the success of the White House's so-called, quote, maximum pressure campaign, which is like maximum pressure to uh, what exactly, you know, which is aimed at forcing Iran through the imposition of ever more stringent sanctions to accept greater constraints on its political and military support for regional militias and the development of its ballistic missile program which is funny because it's having like the opposite effect whereas the nuclear deal was actually having the effect that they wanted so it's very fascinating that through diplomacy uh it was working and then through isolation and sanctions it's not working um this month uh and this i think was may 2020 that this article came out yeah may 8th 2020 um this month the u.s state department publicly unveiled a diplomatic effort to secure a tangible result from its pressure campaign in the run-up to the u.s presidential election an agreement by the u.n security council to extend a conventional arms embargo that is scheduled to expire on october 18th just weeks before the election Back in February, the United States privately circulated elements of a draft Security Council resolution extending the arms embargo to Britain, France, and Germany, hoping to rally support for the initiative. Yeah, uh, yeah. so it's, it's having the opposite effect and is actually bringing us closer to actually sending troops into Iran. So um, very fascinating point there. He's the head of Iran's terror apparatus, and Trump killed him. And Trump unleashed a Hellfire missile, and uh, Soleimani ended up in pieces. He, okay, Soleimani was actually like the head of the army, which um, Trump's administration also deemed a terrorist organization, which is, again, pretty ballsy um, to name like a country's military uh, terrorist organization, which allows Trump to act in certain ways of impunity. I think by ruling him that actually allowed him to drone strike him legally, um, like, because he, he was the head of that terrorist organization and allowed him to drone strike him, which I think in the international criminals court around drone regulations with other, uh, other states, that was the legal loophole. But it was pretty shady because he did it in Iraq against uh, sovereign laws. Um, Fox News reported yesterday that Pentagon leaders targeted by potential threats linked to killing of Iranian General Soleimani. So we actually, uh, Times of Israel reports, U.S. officials said briefed on security threat possibly tied to Soleimani killing. So it actually put more people at risk uh, because uh, Trump murdered Soleimani. Again, it's it, like it's an act of war to kill another nation's general. So, because um, yeah, what World War Two or was it? No, World War One was kind of tipped from the arch. Um, not bishop. Oh fuck! What was his name? Archduke. Yeah. 
So the Archduke of Ferdinand um, was kind of the spark of World War One. So it's, you know, Iran really doesn't want to fuck with us because, again, we have the most powerful military in the country. And it could could throw us into World War Three. I'm not 100% sure. But, um, yeah, that, that, that killing of Soleimani, you can try to spin it as much as you want, Ben, but it was the most um, aggressive act against Iran in decades. Not decades, but in a very long time, just because Obama was really trying diplomacy. That was a ballsy call. Joe Biden opposed it. Donald Trump is responsible for the killing of al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS in the Middle East. After the Obama administration turned ISIS from the so-called JV... I do, yeah, under the Obama, or I mean, Trump administration. Um, he was killed October 26th, 2019. But I mean, you know, killing the head of a snake, honestly. He met with the troops just a couple days ago. Um, but I feel like it has, ISIS already has a new leader. So like, that's just him being like, yep, uh, add that to my list of achievements. But here, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi, um, is an Iraqi Islamist who is the second and current leader of the Islamic State. Yeah, boom. And the fascinating thing is, though, is that if you add to the foreign policy of when Trump pulled troops away from Rojava, which was uh, an act condemned by our own military, um, when that happened, uh, Turkey went in and bombed uh, Rojavan prisons and releasing thousands of uh, Islamic uh, state uh, soldiers. So let's... uh, Go. Um, yeah, 10 2019, uh, reported by Al Jazeera. Hundreds of ISIL or ISIS prisoners escaped Syrian camp. Hundreds of suspected ISIL detainees have escaped from a camp in northern, uh, northeastern Syria, according to local authorities, as Turkey stepped up its military offensive in the Kurdish-controlled region. The suspected affiliates of the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant fled the detention cent- uh, facility in Ain Issa on Sunday after attacking guards and storming its gates, the Kurdish-led administration in northern Syria said in a statement. Uh, yeah, and it said up here in the headline, uh, reports of breakout from facility and Ain Issa amid ongoing Turkish offensive and U.S. announcement of troop pullout. So, um, through that, Trump actually emboldened ISIS and ISIL. So. B-team, that's how Obama described them, into an actual regional power. I mean, they had, they controlled territory larger than the size of the U.K., the Obama administration started to fight back. The, the Trump administration radically accelerated that. And then, of course, Trump killed al-Baghdadi, and ISIS uh, was reduced to rubble. And so all of that... <laughs> ISIS was reduced to rubble. 
Uh, I won't be surprised if we actually hear f like of like full on attacks by ISIS in in the in it in the next year. Um, but we have here just reported March 29th, 2020, uh, ISIS detainees escape prison in northeast Syria. So this is a, a second escape after the October. The Syrian Democratic Forces, which are the Kurds in Rojava, said they regained control of a prison housing suspected Islamic State members near the northeast Syrian town of Has Hasaka on Monday, March 30th, following a breakout attempt the day prior. General Maslam... Abdi, top commander of the SDF, said late Monday that control over the prison had been restored and that no detainees had escaped. Oh, okay. All right. So it was, a, it was actually a, a thwarted break, breakout. They also are doing, they're, they're actually too, the, the, the rough thing is is that the Kurds are actually trying to um, do more of a rehabilitation prison system than they are um punitive or uh they, you know they could sentence isis members to death but rather they're trying to de-radicalize them in their prisons which is fucking bold i think that's ballsier than bombing a dude with a hellfire missile trying to de-radicalize terrorists in your inside your borders is fucking that's bold that's in the Middle East. That was all good Middle Eastern policy from President Trump. It wasn't. It wasn't. Furthermore, and I really President hope Trump that I know this is a little disconjointed, but I really hope in the points that I just went over that Trump did not do well in the Middle East and has not done well in the Middle East whatsoever. He has antagonized Israel, uh, Iran to points of trying to get them to do something worthy of um, invasion countless times so it's it's ridiculous for him to say that he actually gets points especially just because like the height of it is him normalizing relations with israel with the surrounding nations around them when proxy wars are still being fought and palestinians are still being um killed on mass i mean at this point too with i'm sure they don't have the um the tools needed or yeah the the resources that they need to survive coronavirus while still living in open air prisons. Trump recognized China as a threat. So the Bush administration, the Obama administration, all of them treated China as basically a competitor, a strategic competitor, but not a threat. Right? They weren't people who were really out to, to subvert democracy. They weren't people who were out to maximize their own power at the cost of the West. They, they weren't folks who were attempting to exacerbate their own regional influence through pure intimidation. But Trump recognized exactly what it was that China was doing. China has been exploiting trade rules in order to enrich itself. It's been cheating. China has been radically expanding its military presence in the South China Sea. And Trump recognized that, and Trump decided that it was time to actually strike back at Chinese eco economic source of power. We must hold accountable the nation which unleashed this plague onto the world, China. In the earliest days of the virus, China locked down travel domestically while allowing flights to leave China and infect the world. Later, they falsely said people without symptoms would not spread the disease. The United Nations must hold China accountable for their actions. Okay. He didn't get into how specifically China is a threat to the United States or our uh, position in the world stage. He moved, pivoted directly into China being at fault for the coronavirus, which is just a talking point for Trump to um, skirt any accountability or responsibility for the way he's handled it. But I have here a Politico article published April 15th, 2020, of 15 times Trump 
uh, praised China for their coronavirus response. January 22nd on Twitter, one of the many great things about our just signed giant trade deal with China is that it will bring back both the USA and China closer together in so many other ways. Yeah, really sounding like a threat. Terrific working with President Xi, a man who truly loves his country. Much more to come. Yeah, he really perceives them a threat. January 24th, two days later. China has been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. It will all work out well. In particular, on behalf of the American people, I want to thank President Xi. Five days later. Remarks at signing ceremony of the uh, United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, quote, and honestly, I think, okay, <clears throat> I think as tough as the negotiation was, I think our relationship with China now might be the best it's been in a long time, in a long, long time. And now it's reciprocal. Before, we were being ripped off badly. Now we have a reciprocal relationship, maybe even better than reciprocal for us. One day later, China's not in great shape right now, unfortunately, but they're working very hard. We'll see what happens. But we're working very closely with China and other countries. A week later, remarks at North Carolina Opportunity, now summit in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. I just spoke to President Xi last night, and you know, we're working on the problem, the virus. It's a, it's a very tough situation, but I think he's going to handle it. I think he's handled it very well. We're helping wherever we can. February 7th on Twitter, just had a long and very good conversation by phone with President Xi of China. He was strong, sharp, and powerfully focused on leading the counterattack on the coronavirus. He feels they are doing very well, even building hospitals in a matter of only days. That's a bad sentence. Great discipline is taking place in China as President Xi strongly leads that what will be a very successful operation. We are working closely with China to help. Uh, this is later. <laughs> on Marine one, this is the same day on, on a different speech. Uh, late last night, I had a very good talk with President Xi, and we talked about mostly about the coronavirus. They're working really hard, and I think they are doing a very professional job. They're in touch with World, the World Health Organization, CDC. Also, we're working together, but World Health is working with them. CDC is working with them. I had a great conversation last night with President Xi. It's a tough situation. I think they're doing very good. Three days later, I think China is very, you know, professionally run in the sense that they have everything under control. I really believe that they are going to have it under control fairly soon. You know, in April, supposedly, it dies with the hotter weather, and that's a beautiful date to look forward to. But China, I can tell you, is working very hard. Uh, same day later, at a campaign rally, I spoke with President Xi. They're working very, very hard, and I think it's going to work out fine. Uh, three days later, I think they've handled it professionally. I think they've, they're extremely capable, and I think President Xi is extremely capable, and I hope it's going to be resolved. Five days later, I think President Xi is working very hard. As you know, I spoke with him recently. He's working really hard. It's a tough problem. I think he's going to do... Look, I've seen them build hospitals in a short period of time. I really believe he wants to get that done, and he wants to get it done fast. I think he's doing it very professionally. February 23rd. I think President Xi is working very hard, very hard. I spoke to him, he's working very hard. I think he's doing a very good, good job. It's a big problem, but President Xi loves his country. He's working very hard to solve the problem and he will solve the problem, okay? Three days later from that, China is working very, very hard. 
I have spoken to President Xi and they're working very hard. And I know, and if, I, if you know anything about him, I think he'll be in pretty good shape. They're, they've had a rough patch and I think right now they have it. It looks like they're getting it under control more and more. They're getting it more and more under control. Dude, he honestly sounds like somebody who works for like their, 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 their like public relations department. Um, February 27th, I spoke with President G. We had a great talk. He's working very hard. I have to say he's working very, very hard. And if you can count on the reports coming out of China, that spread has gone down quite a bit. The infection seems to have gone down over the last two days as opposing to getting larger. It's actually gotten smaller. Yeah, now he's just lying for them. February 29th, China seems to be taking tremendous progress. Their numbers are way down. I think our relationship with China is very good. We just did a big trade deal. We're starting on another trade deal with China, a very big one, and we've been working very closely. They've been talking to our people. We've been talking to their people having to do with the virus. Yes, he sounds like speaking like China is a big threat, big, big threat to the United States, and yet he keeps talking about how essential their trade deals are. All right. So... Good for him, because China is a bad actor on the world stage. I mean, it is incredible that we have watched in the last several years China overtly take over democratic Hong Kong. Like, literally just take it over. Walk right in and take it over. And the rest of the world did nothing. What do you think Joe Biden is going to do? I mean, you, 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 you allowed the same thing of Israel and Palestine. And also, we allowed the same thing with... He justified the same thing for port uh u.s marshals in portland not really that different it's really not that different and um for him to send out his sympathies for the protesters in hong kong and not feel the same for portland who he thinks are probably just rioters and looters it's 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 that kind of contradiction that only a fascist can hold so I'm sure he's proud of their handling of Hong Kong at the same time as he is disgusted. You think Joe Biden is going to stand up strong to the Chinese? He can't even declare that China is an enemy. He says they're not even a competitor, by the way. He says that the chances that they eat our lunch are nil. Meanwhile, China is already fostering. He hasn't said that. He, uh, he, he has completely um, criticized Trump for his relations with China. He, he famously said... He calls it the art of the deal when it's actually the art of the steal. He's allowing China to fuck us from behind. All right, those last parts weren't actually Biden's words, but that's essentially what he's upheld at the debate stage is that Trump is actually pretty soft on China where Joe Biden would come in hard and ferocious. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like for the most part, China's rising economy um, with our like we need all of their production, you know, almost all of our shit is made in China. Um, all the factory jobs and all of that has been distributed out into the Eastern world. Um, so it's very fascinating um, because the China, uh, United States has a lot of debt held by China. And we also need them to continue to consume the products that we do give to them. You know, like Hollywood is basically their bitch at this point. So, uh, because like, I think the statistic is, is that the Chinese movie market is even bigger than the United States. So they're not necessarily even making movies for us so much. The only reason that they are is because Americans make the movies. But um, yeah, China's rising economy does kind of threaten United States uh, position in the world, but as we move into isolationism, China is coming in as a globalist and is working with other nations. 
And so you have to really consider what kind of position are we taking against China? Is a competitive um, stance really the best move that we have? Because what if we end up in as the USSR in this situation, uh, in this Cold War right now that the Republicans, conservatives and right wingers want to fight against China? This it, Also, this is like completely like Steve Bannonism right here is that Steve Bannon really wants to compete with China. Um, thinking that that's going to innovate the United States. But like, uh, it seems like the way that we've been competing with them, especially underneath the Trump administration, is by furthering our own authoritarianism. Destroying parties inside Taiwan in an attempt to get Taiwan to overthrow its own democratically elected government. And China is on the march, and Trump at least gets that much. Yeah, but I mean, we did the same thing in Bolivia. So like, we do that all the time in South America in Central America. So um, I, I don't like when we virtue signal against other nations when we are heavily flawed with our own colonialism and imperialism. So um, to that, I just rebuttal with bitch, please. Meanwhile, Trump also dumped out of the idiotic Paris Accords. The oh, Paris Accords were set we to go. crumble the American economy like a piece of Kleenex. The Paris Accords would not alleviate climate change in any serious way. Even if all nations abided by the Paris Accords, it would marginally lower the temperature over the course of the next century. I like how um, doing nothing about it is better than marginally doing something about it to Ben Shapiro. That's great. From its, per from its perspective, warmth. The Paris Accords were not being abided by by India. They were not being abided by by China. Trump dumped out of them because they are, in fact, stupid. The Paris Accords are a piece of paper in which a bunch of countries pretend that they're going to reduce their carbon emissions while not reducing their carbon emissions. And uh, they've been held up by Democrats as some sort of grand foreign policy achievement. They are not. They were an excuse to cut down on America's oil industry and her fracking industry and her manufacturing. Here was it was it was all of that across the entire board. And I think the idea was to try and hold other countries accountable for not meeting those standards if they had signed the agreements or even if you know, they're all signed to the like, say, United States, Russia and China are all held to this agreement and another country refuses to be assigned to the agreement and keeps breaking the standards that the agreement has, then those three powerful nations could then hold that nation accountable for it through sanctions, most likely. Um, but it's just fascinating that like nothing at all and allowing oil and fracking to continue on as it is is better than actually trying to move towards a sustainable future, even though the future is already fucked, but we could still have a much more sustainable time and might not have to use geoengineering to uh, try to alleviate the uh, inevitable consequences of having so much infrared heat in our atmosphere. Is President Trump talking about dumping out of because we talk about how CO2 is is the worst of it, but it's like we're trapping heat inside our atmosphere. And at some point it's going to pop much like our economy. The, the Paris Accords. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States to the exclusive benefit of other countries, leaving American workers who I love and taxpayers to absorb the cost in terms of lost jobs, lower wages, shuttered factories, and vastly diminished economic production. 
very fascinating there is that he listed off all these harms that trying to move to a, a sustainable um, energy economy would cause or is causing because of the Paris Climate Accords. And all of those negatives are simply because people want to continue to make short-term profits. Let's hear those lists again. Let's hear the list of uh, things that are suffering because of trying to head towards a sustainable energy source. Capturing. Here was President Trump talking about dumping out of the, uh, the Paris Accords. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States. From making profits. To the exclusive benefit of other countries. Leaving to the exclusive benefit of the entire globe. American workers who I love and taxpayers to absorb the cost in terms of lost jobs, lower wages, shuttered factories, and vastly diminished economic production. All because these massive contributors to climate change have to keep making a profit. And he is correct about this. Okay, and the left went nuts over it. And the fact is, again, the Paris Accords were completely useless. They were an empty piece of paper. They I agree. I agree. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough in everything that every nation seems to be doing, except for Germany, who just doesn't give a fuck. They've been going ham as far as like making sure that they have uh, the they're, they're like the spearhead in that experiment of heading into renewable source energy. Um, but like the unfortunate thing is, is Ben Shapiro is going to argue that doing nothing about climate change is better than doing something. Because I opened with that clip at, at, at the beginning is, uh, of the first part is that Ben Shapiro doesn't necessarily even believe in climate change. And if water levels do rise where you live, then move. They were a big nothing. And then the left says, oh, well, you know, it's so bad that he got out of it. Yeah, on foreign policy, I think it is also worth noting that Donald Trump has not started any new wars. Isn't that kind of a thing? I mean, there's not been a president in my lifetime who hasn't started any new wars. The, the... Trump hasn't started any wars. That's true. He hasn't initiated any wars, even though, like I said earlier, he killed uh, the general of a country, which is... <laughs> A pretty big act of like, hey, fuck around and find out. Um, but uh, Trump inherited the drone war, but it ditched, but ditched accountability. Only a single formal check remains on U.S. killings worldwide. So that's interesting. Um, and yeah, like that's that's kind of part of it is if you um, designate people as terrorists that allows you and if you can justify them being um, a threat to American uh, security, national security, you can drone strike them. The loopholes are very casual. Um, I, I highly recommend um, Jack Hanoran, uh, Hanoran's um, podcast Popular Front. He gets into it very, very much in detail of the state of drones in in, in the world. And um, uh, that's where I kind of heard some information. But we have here this article uh, dated May 8th, 2019. Under Donald Trump, drone strikes far exceed Obama's numbers. Obama was pretty heavy handed with the drone strikes beating uh, Bush. 
Um, but uh, in the first two years, Trump launched 238 drone strikes. Obama launched 186 drone strikes in his first two years. So still egregious numbers, to be perfectly honest with you. But he had 186... Obama had an 186 drone strikes spread between Yemen, Somalia, and Pakistan, where uh, Trump had 176 strikes in Yemen. Just Yemen. That's 10 less in three different... Obama had 10... Let uh, 10 more drone strikes spread out in three countries. Trump had that in just one country. So it says here the Trump administration has carried out 176 strikes in Yemen in just two years compared with 154 during all eight years of Obama's tenure. Let's not forget the school bus of kids that was under the uh, Trump administration. Um... Uh, as the case uh, during Obama's presidency, these strikes have resulted in untold numbers of civilian casualties. According to the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, U.S. drone strikes in Afghanistan killed more than 150 civilians in the first nine months of 20, 2018. Um, as of January of this year, U.S. drone strikes fighting ISIS in Iraq and Syria have killed at least 1,257 civilians. According to the Pentagon and monitoring group Air Wars, estimates the number uh, to be as great as 7,500 civilians. So the United States has been incredibly pieces of shit when it comes to this. And if I'm not mistaken, there's actually an app um, that Air Wars put up that you can, you can track reported airstrikes. Mm, I would have to find that. I'll have to find that later. Let's see. Is it Air Watch? No. I can't remember the app, but there's a specific app that tracks drone strikes daily. So Obama was bad with drone strikes, but uh, Trump has already blown his drone strikes out of the water. Pun intended. Uh, let's get it. War in Yugoslavia was a Clinton war. Putting troops on the ground in Somalia, that was a Clinton war. George W. Bush, of course, did not start the war in Afghanistan. That was a response to 9-11. The war in Iraq was a Bush administration move. The mm. Ob I'm going to have to be right back. It seems like my bladder is getting the best of me. Please give me five seconds. Mm.
Thank you for your patience. You are the greatest audience this nation has ever known. Let's get back to it. Obama administration fought an unconstitutional war in Libya, where America had essentially no foreign policy interest whatsoever. Oh, I didn't know that. I did know that when Obama left office, we were, we were basically fighting uh, seven wars unauthorized. Um, so the Atlantic reports, yeah, April 15th, 2016, that uh, the legacy of Obama's worst mistake um, let's see. In a Fox News interview last Sunday, Obama was asked about his worst mistake. It's a classic gotcha question, but he had an answer ready. Probably failing to plan for the day after what I think was the right thing to do in intervening in Libya. This was yet another act of presidential contrition for the NATO operation in 2011 that helped to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi, but left the country deeply unstable. In 2014, Obama said, quote, we and our European partners underestimated the need to come in full force if you're going to do this. Then it's the day after Gaddafi is gone when everybody is feeling good and everybody is holding up posters saying, thank you, America. At that <laughs> sure, sure, I'm sure that's what everybody was thinking. At that moment, there has to be a much more aggressive effort to rebuild societies that didn't have any civic traditions. Yeah. So yeah. All right. Remembering Libya now, um, but I, I'm I'm certain that's something that the government has been wanting to do with uh, Gaddafi as soon as they could because he was definitely an interesting character in the Middle East. We used him and abused him. Um, I don't I don't really like Gaddafi, um, but I can acknowledge when the United States uses people and they used him pretty fervently. Um, what I would recommend in more information on that is the Adam Curtis documentary, Hypernormalization from 2016. Um, I'm gonna find that drone tracking app right now. Give me one second. I can't tell if they actually still banned it. Is it called metadata? Oops. Let's see here. Hmm. It seems the Apple Store may have banned it, so it might not be available on iPhones anymore. Uh, oh no. So that, uh, yeah, we live in a free country. Freedom of information is not a given to everybody.
Yeah, it seems like it's called metadata, but I still haven't found it. Because metadata also pertains to the uh, information of when you take a picture on your phone. So this is unfortunate. It seems as of March 28th, they've removed it. Yeah, I had it back in the day, but it seems like, yeah, it's uh, Apple's pulled it entirely. Interesting, huh? Interesting. It seems like they deleted it. So uh, smartphones can no longer <sighs> Yeah, it's no longer uh, tracking any of these. gone all right that sucks that sucks and of course he pursued a, a massive drone campaign that was firmly ignored by the left for years on end the fact that trump has not started any new wars is kind of an accomplishment is it not i know that we ignore all of that but for a guy who's supposed to be a tyrannical warmonger he doesn't seem like all that much of a tyrant or a warmonger it's just something i'm noticing trump has actually lessened the amount of control the federal government exerts over your life domestically and he has lessened America's reliance on war making on foreign policy. So I'm wondering, he was supposed to be Hitlerian. I'm wondering where the record of that is. Like, seriously, none of this is to deny he says dumb crap. President says dumb crap. Fact. Also, he has not been a warmonger. He's brought an enormous amount of good to the Middle East. He has stood up to the Russians. He has stood up to the Chinese. He has done many things that I'm always amazed by the talk about Russia, by the way. Donald Trump has actually maintained sanctions on Russia. Donald Trump has stood with Eastern Europe against Russian predations. Barack Obama allowed the Russians to march into Crimea with nothing happening. Obama response to Crimea is what I'm going to look to next. Because I don't think he did nothing.
The Atlantic reported on 2017, was Obama too soft on Russia? Yeah, this picture actually says the opposite. Um, President Trump on Thursday appeared to suggest that his immediate predecessor's Russia policy resulted in Russia's invasion and annexation of Ukraine's Crimea in 2014. Uh, first, the political. In 2012, Mitt Romney, who at the time was seeking the presidency, called Russia the United States' number one geopolitical foe. He was roundly mocked for his assessment, including by President Obama, who was then seeking re-election. Just three years earlier, the Obama administration famously reset U.S. relations with Russia that had been damaged by Moscow's conflict with the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. So it's very complicated. Uh, response uh, Obama's response to Russia's invasion of Crimea in March 2014 and Moscow's subsequent support of pro-Russian rebels in eastern Ukraine was economic sanctions. Yeah, I thought so. Um, so whatever more Ben Shapiro wanted Obama to do, uh, he's been Trump's just been maintaining the sanctions probably. I knew he did sanctions at least. Like that's fucking. It's so easy to know. Uh, so we have on the record the U.S. administration's actions on Russia. This is by, I think, the Brookings Foundation. Uh, let's see. They did sanctions December 5th, 2019 bank hacking scheme, a Russia-based cyber criminal organization called Evil Corp was sanctioned for using... You can't make this shit up, can you? <laughs> uh, they stole more than $100 million from banks and financial institutions. Evil Corp. <laughs> okay. September 30th, sanctions in response to 2018 inter election interference. Uh, September 26th, sanctions in response to sanctions... In evading scheme for Syria. August 2nd was more sanctions in response to Salisbury attack. The U.S. Department of State announced more sanctions against Russia over its use of a nerve agent in Salisbury in 2018. The sanctions fall under the chemical... That's interesting because we never really heard about that too much. Uh, sanctions in response to human rights abuses. Um... See, President Trump denounced Russia's continued support of the Maduro regime. Assault on so, uh, the U.S. Department of State condemned Russia's decision to grant expedited citizenship to residents of Russia-controlled eastern Ukraine. Uh, sanctions in response to Russia's continued aggression in Ukraine. Let's see, let's keep going down here. Because, yep, yeah, all right, just making sure it stayed consistent. In 2018, there was statement. Uh, December 19th, there were sanctions. December 7th statement, 4th statement, 6th. Interesting. So October 19th there was of 2018, there was an indictment in response to dangerous escalation in, oh, in response to attempted interference in U.S. political system. A Russian woman was charged for her alleged role in a conspiracy to interfere. Uh, another indictment for malicious cyber. September 20th, there was sanctions. Um, President Trump signed an executive order imposing sanctions on any nation. Okay, whatever. That wasn't like direct. So there were a lot more sanctions last year than there were in 2018. 
Um, hmm. A lot more sanctions in 2019. But it does seem that like they kind of held firm in most of the same. It wasn't. It's not entirely pro. Russia here. Hmm. Department of Treasury released a list of the most significant senior foreign political figures and oligarchs in the Russian Federation that could potentially be at risk of sanctions. Some more sanctions in response of Ukraine conflict. 2017 sanctions. Twenty seventeen didn't have really much going on. There was more meetings than anything, but the sanctions seems to have ramped up in twenty nineteen, which, you know, I have to ask is like how much is that really related to his uh his bid to uh uh, uh reelection. So fascinating. Especially since most of the the sanctions were actually closer to the end of the year. He got one in March fifteenth, May sixteenth. And then August 2nd, September 22nd, September 30th, and December 5th. Still not many and not very often. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit antagonistic to Russia. You know, you couldn't really call him a puppet except for the fact that he has divided our country, making us less uh, willing to work together on a lot of issues. And by doing, you know, weakening the, the populace, it kind of weakens the United States and Russia likes that. Happening. So. Barack Obama overtly handed over Syria to the Russians. The disconnect between Trump's actual performance and the way that he is covered by the media and by his enemies is extraordinary, extraordinary. Okay, in just a second, we're going to get to some actual good rhetoric by President Trump, because I think perhaps the largest difference between Trump and his opponents is that on a baseline level, Trump does not believe that America is a bad place. On a baseline level, the Democratic Party has moved in the direction of the 1619 Project. They've moved in the direction of a perceived... Ugh. I mean, if you really can't criticize the United States for its history, then, you know, you're so much closer to ultra-nationalism and fascism and American exceptionalism that it's extremely dangerous for the populace because anybody who then does criticize the United States for its shortcomings in history is then marked the enemy of the state. So I just, I can't give Ben Shapiro points on this one because he just sounds dastardly and nefarious and a bit villainous when he's that sold on American exceptionalism. It's so exceptional that it can't be criticized. And yet when it's a democratic republic, uh, democratic, representative um then that's when he believes america is a bad place multiculturalism that suggests that america is no better than any other place donald trump has been a ringing rebuke to that i don't think that he represents it the best way that it could be represented but i think that he has had some real high rhetoric moments i think because, we ignore like, then that's the fascinating thing too is that like trump is the uh, the like the epitome of American capitalism and its toxicity. So for him to like hail Trump for that part is to say to me that Ben Shapiro really likes it when we participate in crony capitalism and uh, Ayn Randian objectivism where selfishness is going to benefit everybody. For those because of the dumb Twitter comments. But it is worth remembering them because in the long run, expression of those values is quite important.
So when it comes to Trump's rhetoric, I've been highly critical, and I think justifiably so. I think his tweets have gotten him in a lot of trouble. I think that if they had flushed his phone down the toilet within the first two days of his election, Donald Trump would be cruising to re-election right now. I think that he has done himself no favors through his rhetorical excesses, uh, through his inability to control his messaging and all the rest. It is worthy of note that Donald Trump has, from time to time, issued some very important statement on American values. That doesn't mean that Trump himself is necessarily the best representative of those values at all times. It does mean the statements are worthy of note because there is a left on the march in the United States that despises American philosophy, wants to see American statues torn down, believes that America is inherently a racist, terrible place. This is a Democratic Party that full-scale embraces the 1619 Project, which suggests that the true founding of the United States was not in freedom and liberty in 1776, and in fact, was something very, very different. Well, I mean, because you have to acknowledge, like, a country, like, people who wrote the Constitution saying that, like, everybody has the right, or I guess we the people, or American citizens, have the right to... Um, what is it? Uh, property, liberty, and the f the pursuit of happiness, and then to exclude people from that, I think is uh, hypocritical, and I feel like is important to acknowledge if we're going to continue to develop this multicultural, very diverse uh, nation. To acknowledge that we've had a very hard time actually including people under our umbrella of liberty and freedom. So it's. Yeah, he he lived, he embodies that hypocrisy even into this day. So, so President Trump famously spoke at Mount Rushmore. He gave what I thought was an absolutely unobjectionable speech. Not only unobjectionable, <laughs> which is crazy because that was like his literal like fascistic speech where he went and hit every fourteen points of like signs of fascism. In that speech, he like hits every single point. That's great. That's great that he. Brings that back up. Because ultra-nationalism and uh, that leading into exceptionalism is one of those two recipes into fascism. Necessary speech. Talking about American values and their enduring purpose and principle and talking about the evils of a disintegrationist philosophy that wishes to tear down the nation on the false basis that America is racist, sexist, bigoted, and homophobic from its roots. Here is Donald Trump at Mount Rush. It was. Like, f there's still countries to the, this day who don't allow gay marriage. We had it in 2015. And I get your religious liberties say that gay people shouldn't be married, shouldn't get married, that homosexuality is a sin and should not be promoted and it's wrong. It's wrong. But in 2015... Dude, like, your beliefs are homophobic. So, like, w how can you say that it's not in the roots when in 2015 the Supreme Court had to say that gay people can get married? How can you say it's not rooted in racism when we had to make an amendment that said no more slaves based on skin color? How can you say it's not rooted when we've had to change things to avoid racism, homophobia, and xenophobia? Which even the word xenophobia is still pretty fucking xenophobic. Like, it's, it's crazy. Because we call immigrants illegal aliens. And so then, oh, you're afraid of xenos, which is aliens. 
So we need to we need we still even need to work on our terminology. <laughs> Rushmore in what I think was probably the most important speech of his presidency. Those who seek to erase our heritage want Americans to forget our pride and our great dignity so that we we don't want to forget our pride or our dignity because we the same people, the American people who had slaves were also the people who freed them. So we are capable of becoming better people, but we have these regressors and these conservatives always holding us back from that social progress because the culture war proclaims that we need to stay conservative in order to preserve the greatness of our country when really the greatness of our country lies in its multiculturalism and its diversity. And allowing that to flourish can create the greatest nation we have ever seen. But rather, we, we suffer because we constantly hold it back from being more diverse and more, more multicultural. So. We can no longer understand ourselves or America's destiny. In toppling the heroes of 1776, they seek to dissolve the bonds of love and loyalty that we feel for our country and that we feel for each other. Their goal is not a better America. Their goal is to end America. And that's that like vicious, uh, dangerous partisanship where like the left is here to destroy everybody and the right is the shield of American prosperity. Um, that's that shit that is going to get civilians killing each other. That's that shit right there that makes a North and a South, an East and a West, a left and a right. When really like most people, I, I guess I can't really speak for everybody. I personally would like to see just the acknowledgement of the American flaws and maybe not celebrate them because we celebrate them unabashedly, like Christopher Columbus, who is like, it shouldn't be even debatable how big of a piece of shit that he was. And yet we celebrate him every year. That's what we're talking about. We don't have, we, we, can, we can give him credit for being ambitious to go across the world, right? But we don't have to celebrate everything that he was. We can, we can give him the credit of being ambitious, but at least acknowledge that we should not repeat his actions, which we do perpetually, which we're allowing to happen in Israel, which we, uh, yeah, yep, which is happening right now in uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, so. He is not wrong about this. And the fact that Trump was willing to speak that out loud is definitely a good thing because the left is on the march. And Joe Biden has been putting out these very patriotic ads, right? It's got all of the stock footage. Like, oh, look, some waving grain. Oh, look, it's an American flag with the sunlight shining through it. Oh, look, it's a father helping his son at a baseball game. Okay, but let's be real. The heart and soul of the Democratic Party is not with the Joe Biden appeals to patriotism at this point. It is with the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Ilhan Omar and the Rashida Tlaib. He, he is arguing that these diverse women... These multicultural women are the threat to patriotism. But I believe patriotism has more to do with willing to fight for your neighbors and not against them. But it seems like American patriotism is shifting away from that as like defending uh, the, the nation from perceived enemies within its borders. 
But again, that's the kind of shit that is going to uh, amplify right-wingers into thinking that they need to kill their neighbors in order to preserve America. That's civil war talk. It's the kind of thing that divides us, not seeing Democrats as just people who see the world differently inside of our own borders, but people who want to, like Ben Shapiro has said and the president has said, want to end America rather than progress it and continue it to grow into a beautiful, diverse, multicultural place. It is with the radicals in the Democratic Party who believe that America is not a great place, that America is, in fact, a quite terrible place. We think it I think it's a great place. I prefer it over a lot of nations, but I do think that it has a hard time taking criticism. And when you can't take criticism, especially when it's justified legitimate criticism, you can't grow from that. You can't progress. You can't improve. So that that is my issue. That is my issue, and I, I, I hope that that is what others share. Because I am sure that Ilhan Omar believes this is a great country, but can use some improvement, which begins with not feeding the fear of the other, but embracing the progress that lies in the unknown. And in fact, Joe Biden from time to time has said this. He said, literally, we have never lived up to our ideals. Never in American history have we lived up to our ideals, which is an amazing statement for a country that freed Europe of tyranny twice, for a country that was responsible. Completely like re removing any help from Russians. Russians didn't do shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we entered both of those wars late. Um, we didn't really want to participate at all. We kind of wanted to see where things would turn out and then get in. Um, but uh, the ideals, like, like specifically, he's acknowledged, he's not acknowledging that people, white men, wrote a constitution saying we have unalienable rights that cannot be removed so long as this government and this constitution stands. And you're right to own a human being. Just not acknowledging it. How can you live up to liberty and freedom while you have slaves? Tell me. For ending slavery within its own borders via a massive civil war for a country. There's like, yeah, so he, he threw it out there, but he throws zero reflection on that. That like we wrote a constitution about freedom, the pursuit of happiness, and then had to fight each other to free other people within our own borders. There's like no level of deepness in this thought. That was responsible for a civil rights movement that elevated a- That there had to be a civil rights movement, that this country instituted federal and statewide segregation and then we had to fight that too so again we're, we're we're still on this precipice of what we're fighting is the conservatism fighting against any kind of multicultural progress in fear of losing possibly judeo-christians even though we can build our own values without god like the bible says there is, i believe in a god certainly but not the god that says that if you worship another god i will punish thee because that's not freedom of religion see the contradictories in in american 
in belief there. So we're, we're still fighting the same war of like, keep things the way they are or continue to grow. And which is fascinating because Americans are obsessed with innovation and yet we just don't want to innovate our constitution very often or the way we live or our culture. We don't want to innovate any of that. We want to stick to the 50s now. We're sticking to the 50s. And it's, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. Eat a victimized racial minority to legally required rights. I mean, that was a righteous crusade. This country has very often- All right. I'm getting I'm getting broken by my bladder because I drunk drink a lot of workers' fuel. Like a lot. Like so much. So I'll be right back. We're almost done. We're almost there. I just want to say, though, how ridiculous it is to say that, like, this country is flawless, even though we have had to constantly spill blood in order to change its flaws. Um, the whole uh, voting rights um, and desegregation had a lot of blood spilled over it. And uh, his, his perspective on history is completely unenlightened and very myopic and somehow preserves white supremacy by ignoring the fact that black blood and even white blood had to be spilled so that people could have more rights in a country that said we had unalienable rights. Wow. Often lived up to its ideals. But Democrats don't, but here's the thing about that statement. Many Democrats don't even like those ideals. Many Democrats believe the ideals themselves are racist. They are tools of oppression. What There's ideals? a whole group of woke people in the United States who believe that freedom of the press, freedom of speech, the rights to bear arms, these rights are in and of themselves the threat to you. They are who, who argues that? Who has argued that? Who, can he, is he going to explain that in the last three minutes? How our first two uh, amendments that people in America hold most dearly how leftists or Democrats see that as a problem because if he could expand on that then maybe we can have a discussion but to throw that out there yet again is just that he is selling the anti-leftism that honestly is feeding into authoritarian fascism in America because the Republicans will consolidate power in a complete move of anti-democratic uh, rhetoric and propaganda and fear-mongering a threat to me. They're a threat to everything good and decent. The Democratic Party is moving in their direction. They'd rather make common cause with those folks than defend those. 
It's fascinating because the United States president has moved in United States marshals in order to use fear intimidation tactics to uh, quell protests, a.k.a. the First Amendment. His core rights. Trump pointing that out is definitely worthwhile. The other speech that President Trump gave that I thought was uh, quite impactful was in 2017. President Trump spoke defending Western civilization in Warsaw. He talked about Russia's destabilizing actions around the world. He praised the Polish resistance. And uh, naturally, the left-wing media immediately declared that this was white nationalism and anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant rhetoric because he talked about the glories of Western civilization. Why? Because Trump said that um, when, we were, when he was talking about Western accomplishments, he talked about art and symphonies and all of this stuff. And apparently that's bad. That's very, very bad. You're not allowed to talk about the greatness of Western civilization without the left immediately labeling it white supremacist, which shows the problem with the left. If you hate Western civilization so much that you believe that even its mention is a white supremacist dog whistle, then uh, you should not be trusted with the keys to the car. I think it kind of is, though, because like, um, let's see here. It, it kind of is, especially with like Western civilization being like, driven forward with colonization which was you like colonization and the ownership of humans as property white supremacy had to drive that like white people were the chosen people of god and allowed them to create egregious acts against um indigenous peoples and uh people around the world so hold on um let's see the 14 words though Okay, so I thought the 14 words had something a little bit more to do with um, Western civilization specifically. Um, it doesn't. Let's see here. Earlier this month, Iowa Congressional Representative Steve King, yes, known for his xenophobia, support for white supremacy, and long history of promoting racist politics, was quoted by the New York Times asking, quote, white nationalists, white supremacists, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive, unquote. No one has defended King for asking this about, quote, white nationalists or white supremacists. But Texas Congressional Representative Louis Gohmert said that it is a fair question to ask, quote, when did Western civilization become a negative, unquote. And South Carolina Senator Tim Scott said, quote, I am unsure who is offended by the term Western civilization on its own, unquote. If Scott were to look into it, he would find many different people, including classical scholars, arguing that Western civilization is coded language for white supremacy, even, response, even in response to King's latest remarks. But it's important to keep reiterating the case. Just this month, a member of the Professional Association for Classical Scholars prefaced a racist attack on a scholar of color by insisting on the need of cla or for classical scholars to protect Western civilization. 
And we need to reiterate not only that Western civilization refers to a racist ideology, but that those who use it as King does are referring to Greco-Roman antiquity. King did not explicitly mention classical antiquity, but it seems likely he had it in mind. Most of the coverage of King's comments have focused on the quote given above, but King said more than this. He also said, quote, why did I sit in classes teaching me about the merits of our history and our civilization, unquote. He's probably not referring to courses he took for his math and biology majors. Much more likely, he means courses he took on ancient Greek and Roman history and literature. The white supremacist site American Renaissance certainly thinks that's what King was talking about. It covered his comments in an article entitled, Western Civilization is White Civilization. The only period of history discussed in this article is ancient Greco-Roman history. This is the same site that Pharaohs has documented perpetuating the claim that ancient Greeks were the descendants of Nordic invaders. Why is the nexus of Western civilization, classical antiquity, and white nationalist politics so clear to the editors of American Renaissance and not to Senator Scott? Or it seems so professional scholars of classics. It's because the racists are tuned into that language in a way that the rest of us aren't or haven't been. In January 2018, reporter Megyn Kelly interviewed Christian Piccolini, who was a member of the Hammerskins white supremacist group and later left the movement to found the anti-hatred organization Life After Hate. Piccolini told Kelly that when the white supremacists hear news reports about globalism or the liberal media, they understand these to be coded references to the global Jewish conspiracy and the Western Jewish media. It's time for classical scholars to recognize that Western civilization is a similar dog whistle. We may think it means everything good about the classical past, but to many people, including some, if you're a teacher, that may be in your class. It means a justification for racist politics and the defense of a white ethnostate. So this comes from uh, Pharaohs doing justice to the classics. It's an article published from 2019. Western civilization has been moved to mean that. Um, Ricardo Duchesne whose white nationalist website includes homophobic and racist articles on ancient material, has written a book entitled The Uniqueness of Western Civilization. The misogynist site Return of Kings, which frequently makes use of classical material, has published many articles about the supposed decline of Western civilization, including, quote, how the elites are using radical Islam to subvert and destroy Western civilization, unquote. The racist and xenophobic site V-Dare, which compares contemporary immigrants to late antique barbarians, features an article by Paul Kersey, whose racist site Pharaohs has also documented, arguing that black antisocial behavior is absolutely destroying what's left of Western civilization in the United States. A leading anti-Semitic website, The Daily Stormer, published an article about the death of Holocaust denier Robert Farrison, in which they said that, quote, despite the way the Jews have smeared him, he will be remembered for what he was, a hero of the people and a champion of Western civilization, unquote. Now let's remember that Manifest Destiny was also called Western Expansion. 
I'm just adding that at the end there because Ben Shapiro may or may not be aware of dog whistles, but he just used one. And he's trying to skirt any of the moderates catching on to that. But people who are a part of these circles are well aware of what they mean by Western civilization. And I'm sure the president does as well. Let's remember the president kept a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. And when asked about it, he said, I've never read it, but it was given to me by a friend. No, it wasn't Mein Kampf. I think it was uh, uh, speeches. It said, actually, it was my friend Marty Davis from Paramount who gave me a copy of Mein Kampf, and he's a Jew. So. Hmm. Yeah, he had, he had a copy of speeches. Here was President Trump talking in defense of Western civilization in Poland in 2017. Oh, my America. God. What? In Poland? What? Holy fuck, dude. Like, how much like louder can that dog whistle be? What? <laughs> Holy shit. Dude, that has got to be the loudest fucking dog whistle in history then. Holy shit. That's a bullhorn. That's a fucking purge siren. Holy shit. Poles and nations of Europe value individual freedom and sovereignty. Mm. We must work together to confront forces, whether they come from inside or out, from the south or the east, that threaten over time to undermine these values and to erase the bonds of culture, faith, and tradition that make us who we are. Hey, that is true. It is true. And these are challenges that are going to outlast any election. The challenges to American philosophy, the challenges to Western civilization, these are civilizational challenges. They are going to outlast whatever happens between Joe Biden and Donald Trump next week. It's going to require a re-education of the American public and the foundational principles of America. Not re-education in the Maoist sense, not indoctrination. A reacquaintance with founding principle that has been completely obliterated by a left that sees those foundational principles as bad. <laughs> And it's just like by ignoring like all the history, um, we just need to understand like how exceptional Americans were that they could do all of these atrocities. Like I, it's a fascinating way that he's like, we need re-education. Actually, I mean reacquaintance because that just kind of sounds like communist or authoritarian. Wow, like what a what a way to close this up because like a part of, a part of Trump's like agenda list is that like American patriotism and exceptionalism to be taught in uh, schools. Like that's a very essential part to his educational program. And that to me is just like, okay, we're really trying to just blind kids entirely of any malice done by the United States and just trying to say that we were all perfect all the time. We never did anything wrong ever, and how could we? The fact that Trump spoke out about them during his presidency is worthy of note. And the fact that his opponents hated them so much is even more worthy of note. If Trump has done nothing else rhetorically, he has certainly clarified where people stand. Trump is like a catalyzing enzyme. 
He's made everything quite clear. It is now very obvious where a lot of people stand on American founding philosophy on Western civilization, regardless of whether you th All right, Ben Shapiro saying that America, you either vote for Trump for America or you vote for Biden, the destruction of America. That is the final conclusion of that. Great, great. This is a healthy democracy. Thank you for joining me on Tox News. I'll have to join you next time. This has been me. I love you. Please hit me up on Twitter, at As A Wave. Thank you.